the spot in the Arctic, which always uh, holds a special place for me is a place called the Eclipse Ice Field. And that's in the St. Elias Mountains, which are on the border of Alaska and the Yukon and basically sit right next to the Pacific Ocean. There's a lot of reasons why I find it so special, but one of them is that when you're on the Eclipse Ice Field, you're looking at directly at Mount Logan. Mount Logan is the highest spot in Canada and the Mount Logan Massif. So in other words, the entire mountain itself is by any calculation, probably the largest single thing on the face of the earth. When you're sitting at the Eclipse Ice Field looking at Mount Logan, you tr truly get a sense of how small you actually are with respect to our planet and the processes that shape our planet. So I'm always awed by that. That's Carl Kreutz, director of UMaine School of Earth and Climate Sciences, talking about one of the many spots in the Arctic that he has worked in over the past few decades, exploring the Earth's climate and the factors that affect it. I'm Ron Lisnett, and this is the Main Question Podcast. The rugged beauty of that place Carl describes, looking at that massive block of stone that makes up Mount Logan. As a professor in the Climate Change Institute, it's just one of the many dramatic scenes that he and many researchers and students at UMaine have been fortunate enough to visit as they document the Earth's past climate, assess its present condition, and try to map out where our planet is headed. For many, the idea of what the Arctic actually is likely assumes that it's a blank, white, frozen wasteland that is very far away and really doesn't have much to do with our lives in the lower 48. In fact, the Arctic is far from just a monolithic frozen tundra, and what happens there affects our lives and the environment in Maine in many ways. Warming, rising seas are changing Maine's coastline. The lobster fishery is being affected. We've learned new terms like the polar vortex, which has wreaked havoc with the weather as far away as Texas. For decades, people who study earth and climate science at UMaine have been working in remote corners of the world. Recently, much of that work has been brought together in a new effort called UMaine Arctic. Formed in 2018, it brings together the people at UMaine who have an interest in our planet's high latitudes. That work encompasses much more than the climate and other environmental topics. Politics, business, mining, military operations, and many other issues are focus areas for the four dozen or so faculty who are part of UMaine Arctic. Beyond that, UMaine is also part of the University of the Arctic, or UArctic, a cooperative network of some 20 colleges, universities, and research institutions. Their mission statement talks about enhancing human capacity in the North, promoting communities in the region, sustainable economies, and global partnerships. We talked about all of this and more with Carl Kreutz and with Kristen Shield, an assistant professor of Earth and Climate Science who helps direct UMaine Arctic. We wanted to get an idea of what it's like in the polar regions to live and work there, what the research shows is happening there, and how that radiates to the rest of the planet. In short, the main question for this episode, how does the Arctic affect our lives in Maine? Thank you both so much for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time. The Arctic, everybody knows about it from just general interest or history or stories that they've heard and things. But you guys know, obviously, a lot more about what it's like up there. So maybe maybe you can paint us a picture. Of what What is it like there? Is it more than just a frozen white wasteland that uh, that many people might think is the case? Carl, maybe start with you. Most certainly is much more than just a uh, frozen white wasteland. I've had the good fortune of traveling in many different parts of the Arctic. And, you know, what you find uh, ranges 
every you know has everything from you know the open Arctic Ocean, um, which is its own dynamic sort of landscape, up to the high mountains, across the tundra, up onto the Greenland ice sheet and other ice caps. And there is a lot of white up in the Arctic, but there's so many other colors as well. You know, blues, shades of gray, shades of white, greens. You know, it really is. It's a rich. It's a rich landscape up there for sure. It's definitely not just a, a frozen white waste, uh, wasteland. Man, it's an amazing place to travel. You see so many different things, really interesting wildlife that, of course, we're not familiar with down here in the mid-latitudes necessarily. So you see lots of different um, you know, plants and animals up there. And I think oftentimes one of the things that strikes me is, particularly in these really remote places, is how quiet it is. That really makes an impact, at least on me, just how quiet it can be and how peaceful but at other times, the weather, you know, the weather gets nasty up there for sure. And, uh, you know, Kristen and I and many others who work up there have experienced um, some really wild conditions. So it's it's a it, I'd say it's a very dynamic place. That is for sure. Not just a frozen white wasteland. Kristen, what impressions has it left on you? Oh, yeah, it's a great question. So a lot of the same impressions it's left on Carl. So it, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous up there. And you see the beauty as much as you see the fury I think one of the most exciting parts to me is also to be able to interact and to become part of some of the communities up there. So it's it's not just wildlife, it's also people that live there uh, in these environments and being able to experience their culture and be in their communities. It's It's really rich and exciting. It's great. I love going to the Arctic. People think it's a faraway place and really doesn't have much relevance or pertinence to their to their lives. Uh, can you make the case that uh, it's important and does affect our everyday life in terms of um, weather or any other number of factors? It's really easy to say, oh, those those glaciers, those icebergs, you know, the, the Arctic Ocean, it's so far away. It is. It is far away. But it's also connected to our ocean and our atmosphere. You know, these these winds come from someplace, they go someplace else. Same with the ocean. A lot of the warming that we're seeing in the Arctic is trickling down into um, different things that we really value here in Maine. For instance, the, the lobster populations or coastal erosion, you know, our beaches, our shorelines, those are things that make Maine really unique. And those are also being impacted by changes in, directly from the Arctic. Kristen, is this one of the fastest changing regions on the planet? What's happening there in terms of ice being lost? Absolutely, yeah. So so the Arctic and the Ar- Antarctic are, are changing rapidly. I study glaciers that end in the ocean that discharge these really large icebergs um, that are really contributing to sea level rise, and, and they've more than doubled their contribution within the last two decades. Um, so just the glaciers themselves in, in relation to sea level rise are certainly changing dramatically. Um, and that has a big impact on atmospheric circulation, uh, ocean temperatures, ocean freshening, which also impacts the circulation. It starts kind of a, a whole number of different feedback loops where we see warming, warming in the Arctic um, can change one variable like glacier speed and make glaciers go faster, uh, which then can lead to ocean freshening, which then can lead to not as much heat being stored and more heat being released. And so it gets in this kind of nasty feedback loop of a little bit of warming there can lead to increased warming there. The ironic thing, of course, is that warming in the Arctic, uh, it can make 
potentially the weather in the lower 48 worse. Is that the polar vortex, Carl? And, and can you explain to us how that works? Yeah, the polar vortex, people have, um, people have probably heard that term uh, by now. And in fact, if you were shoveling the snow out of your driveway over the past couple of weeks, like I uh, was, you, you definitely are familiar with the idea of the polar vortex. So um, the idea is that, you know, if you look at the, if you look at the distribution of temperatures across the Earth's surface, of course, we all know it's warmer at the equators and it's very much colder um, at the polar regions like the Arctic. But as Kristen said, because the Arctic is warming so rapidly, that difference in temperature between low latitudes and the Arctic is becoming less. And so when you do have a big difference in temperatures, that affects how fast the winds are swirling around um, you know, sort of around the globe in the high latitudes. And that's what's basically known as the polar vortex. So when the, you know, the low latitudes are warm and the Arctic is very cold, those winds are very strong and that tends to keep all that cold air sort of locked up in the Arctic. But what we've seen happening recently as the Arctic has warmed is that the difference in temperature is becoming less. And so the, the jet stream, that circle of winds around the, the high latitude is becoming a lot more wavy. And those waves, you know, the, the wavy pattern um, in the polar vortex is what's bringing these blasts of cold air down to lower latitudes. So like what happened in Texas last uh, winter was a great example of it. And there's, there's good evidence now that the, the strength of winter storms. So if you look at some of these storms that have been coming through us recently, giving us these really large dumps of snow, the strength of those winter storms might be linked to this, this polar vortex idea. So, I mean, Kristen was talking about impacts um, of war the warming Arctic and the impacts those have on us here in Maine and in the mid latitudes. This polar vortex idea is, is one of those big impacts. And it's a, it's a big area of study right now. Places that aren't used to getting that weather, like Texas, like you mentioned, or the Carolinas, they're having to get used to storms they haven't ever seen, right? Absolutely. And it's this idea of, you know, an increase in extreme weather be it snowstorms, be it heavy rainfall, temperature change, you're right. I mean, places that aren't necessarily used to those extremes are, are having to deal with it. You know, adaptation and resiliency are, are big words in the scientific commu community right now. And, you know, for us as well, I mean, adopting to these big storms and now it's warm outside, you know, the snow is melting. These are all extreme things that are that are becoming more and more common. So let's do a little bit of a, a lightning round. There's so many issues we can touch on here, but, but that are that are of interest. Some that are affected by changes in the Arctic. First of all, some are scientific, and some are affected by science. I guess so. Changes that might be happening up there, Kristen. Are we going to see a time when there is no freezing and you can travel through the Arctic or, or around the globe? Is that uh, possibly in the future. Yeah, so the Arctic Passage, yeah, through the, the Arctic Ocean where we wouldn't see sea ice, then that's certainly, for shipping purposes, it's a much faster way, um, or a more direct route, I should say. But it comes with a lot of challenges. So if sea ice moves in and, and those shipping vessels get stranded, who's in charge of search and rescue up there? Uh, if they run aground, how are we going to, you know, do oil spill mitigation up there? Certainly, the Arctic is, is already experiencing a lot of changes with their sea ice coverage. Um, and I know that shipping is one of those hot topics of now that there's not as much sea ice, maybe we can successfully clear some routes through there. Carl, there's uh, 
Obviously, there's the science, but it crosses over into politics and geography and everything else for issues like uh, mining and uh, energy extraction. Are, are those going to be complicated issues we're going to have to face in the future? Yeah, I think they're going to be uh, really complicated issues. Um, you know, resource extraction uh, up in the Arctic as as we lose ice cover and things are exposed. Um, you know, there, there are resources up there that uh, are being exposed or at least are becoming more accessible. Mineral resources, oil resources, companies, governments have their have their eye on those resources and, and figuring out who is going to extract them and when and how and who controls those things. I mean, these are all, these are all important issues. Uh, as Kristen said, you know, too, I mean, um, economic issues, but then environmental issues, if you're going to extract those resources, um, if something happens, who who deals with that? The geopolitics of what's happening up in the Arctic is, um, you know, those are really interesting and, and fast changing topics too. It, yes, we know the climate and the weather is changing up there, but uh, so is everything else that goes along with it. And is that happening at even more of a base level in terms of who owns what piece of property or what section of the Arctic? Is that uh, a contentious issue now as well? It is. Um, and we've seen some, you know, Kristen and I and others do work in Greenland and ownership issues, uh, the politics of, of all these boundaries and how they're changing and who's moving where, when. Uh, yeah, these are complicated topics and, and a lot is at stake. So people are <laughs> fights going on and fights to be had. I'd say, yeah, for sure. Now, you both can maybe comment on this, but does UMaine have a pretty long history of working in the Arctic regions? UMaine certainly does. It uh, stretches back certainly um, to the 1960s when folks that Kristen and I are familiar with started doing work on ice and changes in ice up in the Arctic, across the Arctic, lots of different places through Scandinavia and Alaska, Greenland. You know, we then moved into a lot of work studying, you know, sort of past climate changes up in the up in the Arctic by recovering um, ice cores as part of big international programs. But UMaine's Arctic program has expanded dramatically over the past, you know, 10 to 20 years. So not just, you know, it sort of started probably with respect to the you know, physical climate system and past climate changes in the Arctic, but now just encompasses everything from ecology to economics to politics, business, law, the list is ever expanding. So uh, UMaine's Arctic presence started a long time ago, but continues to, to grow considerably. Kristen, there's now a group called UMaine Arctic. What is that about and why was it formed? It was formed very recently, summer 2018. The goal of it was to bring together all of this Arctic knowledge, Arctic research, Arctic interest across campus. As Carl mentioned, we now have a lot of different departments that are interested in either Arctic or Arctic impacts. The Humane Arctic Initiative now has over 20 different departments, so it, it may very well be the most interdisciplinary initiative on the Humane campus. It might be, not totally sure, but it has yeah over 40 faculty members um, just in a short time. And, and like Carl said, it's everything from history, law, forestry, anthropology, earth science, political science. So it covers a, a wide range um, of disciplines, but all folks that are really interested in Arctic research um, and what's going on in the Arctic environment. So the Humane Arctic Initiative was formed in 2018, brought together all these researchers across campus 
uh, with the goal of being able to collaborate to do more interdisciplinary work. So we meet every month. We have seminar series. Uh, We just got our first seed grant off the ground and uh, continuing interdisciplinary collaboration. In academia, we love our acronyms. So we have UMAIN Arctic, which you just described, and now there's UARCTIC, which is uh, another group. But how is UMAIN involved in that organization, Carl? So, right, Ryan, is, yeah, we, we try. It's, it's sometimes a little confusing to keep these things separate. So, yes, UARCTIC uh, stands for the University of the Arctic. Uh, and this is a, an organization, uh, it's really a consortium of about over 200. Um, mostly academic institutions, but there are some nonprofits um, involved as well. So a range of institutions that, are, that have interest in the Arctic. And the organization was founded as an offshoot of the Arctic Council about 20 years ago. And really the organization um, exists to promote collaboration across all these institutions in the Arctic. It's mostly related to education and education, not only for Arctic climate and Arctic ecosystems, but Northern communities and Northern populations as well. So really trying to draw all that together. So we, University of Maine, joined UArctic back in 2015. Um, and our involvement has been growing um, ever since then. And again, we're, we're you know, primarily, we, it, it, there, is some, there is research interaction that's involved, but really our involvement is based around student education. So trying to get involved in student exchange programs, both for undergraduate students and graduate students, and really trying to share knowledge. Now, I know there's a major meeting happening of UArctic in in Maine this year. Can you talk about what's going to go on there? Yeah, so UArctic is having um, what they call uh, an assembly meeting, which is really kind of primarily a, a, a business meeting for UArctic. So representatives from all the different institutions come to these assembly meetings to you know, do the business of UArctic, but there's a lot of collaboration and interaction that goes on as well. So this year, the UArctic Assembly meeting is going to be in Portland, Maine, um, June 1st to the 3rd. It's being hosted in Portland by all the different UArctic members that exist in New England. So that's ourselves, University of Maine, uh, the University of New England, University of Southern Maine, uh, Dartmouth College and the University of New Hampshire. So those five organizations are co-hosting the event. Uh, it, it, it physically is going to be in Portland, but um, uh, but the the five New England U Arctic members are co-hosting this meeting. So look, let's look out into the future a little bit. How is UMaine's work in the Arctic going to change and evolve? Are are there new areas to be explored, or is it uh, just deepening what what you've been working on thus far, Kristen? What to what do, you, what do you see on the horizon that uh, you get excited about? I absolutely see UMaine's interest in the Arctic continuing and strengthening. Um, as the Arctic continues to change, it, it kind of opens up many new research paths, research questions. But we also have a recently funded um, NSF grant that's training graduate students. And it's training these graduate students to look at the Arctic from a systems perspective, so not just from the natural sciences or the social sciences, but combined. The Arctic is a system and it, it acts and it works like a system. Um, and so that's at least some of the new horizon is, is really training the next generation of, of students um, and scientists and advocates to, to understand uh, the Arctic. Next five or 10 years, Carl, as best as you can tell, 
what might we expect? What 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 are we going to see? Are, are obviously trends are going to continue as as we've seen, but uh, if you if you had a crystal ball and you were going to give us a careful prognostication, what do you think we'll see in five or ten years up there? I'm loath to make predictions, but I'll but I'll you know I think we can expect the tr- as you said the trends that we see um, that we've seen recently are probably going to continue. It's hard to imagine that the Arctic doesn't um, continue to warm at a rapid pace, and all of the ice loss and thawing doesn't uh, continue. You know, there's a lot of concerns about that, not only for northern communities, but for us as well, related to the things we talked about, but also related to the the type of feedbacks that Kristen touched on. I mean, you know, one of the big concerns in the Arctic is the loss of permafrost up there and the changes in the carbon cycle that that might bring about. So as permafrost thaws, Permafrost stores, stores a lot of carbon, and as it thaws, that carbon is released into the atmosphere. There's there's many more times the amount of carbon stored in permafrost than exists in the atmosphere right now. Many people are very concerned about the the feedbacks that occur up in the Arctic with respect to permafrost. So I think that's one of the things to really sort of keep our eyes on. And as Kristen mentioned, there's you know as we look forward, um, as these changes are, are ongoing, you know new technologies are coming along which are being applied up there all the time. Um, not only you know, does our ability to monitor what's happening in the Arctic, both on the ground and from satellites and other technologies uh, improve, so does computing power and you know, sort of applying artificial intelligence and other advanced techniques to really try to understand what's happening in the Arctic. So monitoring these trends, trying to put them in context, trying to understand how things are continuing to evolve in the Arctic is, that's our job and that's what we're going to you know, try to keep doing. So I don't know if Siberia is considered part of the Arctic. Certainly part of it is. But did I hear it right that at one point last summer, it got over 100 degrees in Siberia? It was like the hottest place on the planet at one point. Is that, am I getting that right? Yes, you're getting, you're getting that right. And Kristen can correct me if I misspeak here, but I don't think I do. It rained on the summit of the, the summit, the highest point of the Greenland ice sheet uh, last summer had rainfall, which is the first time certainly in the, the history of recording, whether at that spot it ever happened, it's probably the first time it's happened there in a very, very long time in Earth's history. So yeah, these are these are the extremes that we're, we're starting to see. And so finally, just one, one final question. Uh, do either of you or do both of you have a, a favorite place or a story or a wildlife encounter, something that, you know, you really sort of it stuck with you uh, as you were up there doing your work or what have you. Kristen, anything stand out for you? Wow. Um, yeah, I think I think one of my favorite stories is when I was up in Svalbard. So there's an archipelago north of Norway, um, and I was studying the meltwater that comes out of glaciers. And it's really hard to see when those glaciers end in the ocean, when they have meltwater coming out of them. Um, so it was kind of a challenging question to start with. And I was out there with some biologists and we noticed all of a sudden these birds were just diving, just diving straight into the ocean. And we were like, what's going on? Like right near the glacier terminus. And they were like, oh, it's it's because krill are really used to salt water. And whenever the glacier flushes out this fresh water, it stuns their system and they float to the surface. And so that's when the birds can come in and get, you know, these the krill. We're like, here we are trying to study, you know, when this meltwater comes out and the biologists and the, the folks studying the birds already know the answers. It was a really great opportunity just to see how you can come at a system from many different perspectives and continue to learn more about it. And so it, it really 
pushes forward this idea of a systems approach and, and many different perspectives are needed in order to truly understand uh, what's going on and, and how we can monitor and, and, you know, make changes. Carl, how about you? Any experiences or a memory from your time up there that uh, stands out? Lots of experiences um, over the course of a couple of decades of working in polar regions, but I think what sticks with me are um, a few favorite places. I could go on and on about my favorite places in Antarctica, but um, the, the spot in the Arctic, which always uh, holds a special place for me, is a place called the Eclipse Ice Field. Um, and that's in the St. Elias Mountains, which are on the border of Alaska and the Yukon and basically sit right next to the Pacific Ocean. And the Eclipse Ice Field, we've worked there for many years. And the reason I find it, well, there's a lot of reasons why I find it so special, but one of them is that when you're on the Eclipse Ice Field, you're looking at directly at Mount Logan. Mount Logan is the highest um, spot in Canada. And the Mount Logan Massif, so in other words, the entire mountain itself is by any calculation, probably the largest single thing on the face of the earth. That mountain, that mass of rock is the biggest thing on the face of the earth. And when you're sitting at the Eclipse Ice Field looking at Mount Logan, you tr truly get a sense of how small you actually are with respect to um, our planet and the processes that shape our planet. So I'm always awed by that when I when we do have the chance to to go into that environment and you know sort of get that perspective on things. And it happens to be a place where we have a new undergraduate program taking our undergraduate students um, from the University of Maine. Our goal is to get them up on the Eclipse Ice Field and give them that perspective um, for themselves. So we're starting that up this spring. It's a program called the Sea to Sky Experience. So. If any undergraduates want to learn more about it, they can talk to Kristen or I. Now, just to, to put a cap on that, uh, do they have to be upperclassmen? Do they have to be certain majors, or how, how does that work? So it's a 400-level class, ERS 410, Sea to Sky Experience. So ideally, they'd be upperclassmen, juniors or, juniors or seniors. We in the School of Earth and Climate Sciences use it as one of our options for our capstone experience. So primarily, it will be for students from the School of Earth and Climate Sciences, but um, but it is going to be open to other students as well who have interest and and uh, you know want to experience these Arctic environments with us. Sounds like a great opportunity. Well, thank thank you both so much for uh, sharing your stories with us. This is great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about UMaine's work in the Arctic, head to umaine.edu/arctic. You can find this in all of our episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, UMaine's Facebook and YouTube pages, as well as Amazon and Audible. Send your questions and comments along to mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.